friends and enemies, welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode 7 of the series The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars to be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. Welcome back to 1924, the third year of the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers' Baby Stars list. I've already told you about Carmelita Garrity, Julianne Johnston, Blanche Mahaffey, Hazel Keener, Marion Nixon, and Margaret Morris in Episode 5, and of course, It Girl, Clara Bow in Episode 6, and I'm so sorry in advance for how I divided up my wampus babies. Get ready for a real downer. But first, just what is a wampus? According to the Exhibitor's Herald, July 5th, 1924, a wampus is defined as 1. A practitioner of propaganda. 2. A person who has received a diploma of the highest degree from the School of Hard Knocks and who has been lawfully admitted to the organization of the Western Motion Picture Advertisers. 3. A writing person who can turn his hand to any job and see it through to a successful conclusion. They then paint a picture of their membership. At the present writing, the membership role of the Western Association Motion Picture Advertisers lists 76 active members, 9 associate members, and 3 honorary members. Of these numbers, every motion picture studio and theater in and around Los Angeles is represented by at least one member. The 1924 election finally gave that dick Harry D. Wilson the top spot as president. And he's pictured in a dorky bow tie looking all the world like he smelled a fart. He commemorated the four-year anniversary of the organization by reflecting, In those four short years we have struggled, we have grown, we have risen to a commanding position in this great industry. We can look back with smiles and happy memories. We can think of the days when there was a slight trace of so-called hop for the organization. Members were slow in attendance. Some meetings were very limited in attendance. But these rocks were gradually cleared from the path of progress, and today it is a matter of utmost pride to belong to this worthy band. It took time to organize, took time to realize the importance we could attach to our organization, took time to fully recognize just how much we could help one another help our executives, our producers, employers, everybody. Such is the genus Wampai, concludes the Herald's piece, a happy-go-lucky, hard-working, essential arm of the great industry that furnishes screen entertainment for the whole world. Too bad things weren't so happy-go-lucky for all the Wampus baby stars of 1924. Let's get to it. Lucille Rickson. I'm going to get Lucille's story out of the way because, fair warning, it's sad. Born August 22, 1910, she was just 13 years old when she was named a Wampus Baby Star. Lucille, whose birth name was Ingborg Myrtle Elizabeth Erickson, started her career as a child model and was just four years old when she appeared in 1915's The Millionaire Baby. 
After her parents divorced, her mother moved Lucille and her older brother, who also acted, to Hollywood in 1920. The little girl was signed with Samuel Goldwyn, who quickly put her in The Adventures of Edgar Pomeroy serial. The series was a hit, and less than a year later, Motion Picture News wrote about Lucille and her leading boy, Johnny Jones, They are without question the most well-known child actors in the world. The magazine was quoting Sam Goldwyn, and well, he would say that, but the series and its stars were popular. After wrapping the Edgar series, Lucille appeared in juvenile roles in adult dramas, including Human Wreckage, which starred Bessie Love and dealt with narcotics abuse. By 1922, her age was being embellished upon. Lucille Rickson, talented 16-year-old beauty, has been signed by Universal for an indefinite period, the Exhibitor's Trade Review reported in their October 21, 1922 edition. She had actually only just turned 12. She appeared in her first feature-length leading role, playing an 18-year-old, in The Rendezvous in 1923. Her love interest in the film was Conrad Nagel, 13 years her senior. And while 16 seems to be the age cited most often, some reports from that year seem comfortable saying she was 14. For business reasons, Lucille is 18 years old, says Screenland's December 1923 issue. In the privacy of her home, she's 14. Again, she wasn't. She was by then 13, but still, this points to some strange line-towing. It was well known that she was very young, but everyone, filmmakers and audiences alike, had to agree to look the other way if she was going to appear in romantic roles opposite grown men. Just before the Wampus Frolic and Ball, Lucille appeared in Judgment of the Storm, and a whole slew of pictures followed, including The Galloping Fish, where her husband in the film, Sid Chaplin, was a full 25 years older than her. In total, she had nine films released in 1924 alone. That she would be a major and important star seemed to be practically a given. But I already warned you, this would be a sad story. Lucille reportedly first fell ill during the filming of The Galloping Fish. And, well, as I mentioned, she went on to film several more pictures. She never fully recovered. Eventually diagnosed with tuberculosis, she spent several months bedridden. Paul Byrne was a frequent visitor, as was Lois Wilson, baby star of 1922, and reportedly Lucille's honorary big sister. In February 1925, her mother, who had been spending every moment caring for Lucille, had a heart attack and passed away. A few weeks later, Lucille Rickson, Ingborg Erickson, died on March 13, 1925, at just 14 years old. The salt in the wound is that Lucille Rickson's sad, brief story is that a childhood cut so short was already cut even shorter by having been thrust into adulthood far too early. We can wax philosophically about what she might have achieved, who she might have become. But we already know 
what she was not allowed to be. Just a kid. Gloria Gray. The grim parade continues with Gloria Gray, I'm sad to report. Born in October 1909 as Maria Dragomanovich, she was just 14 when the Wampas put her on their 1924 list. And yes, I am wondering what the fuck was up with the Wampas guys that year, because their choices skewed very young. And much like with Lucille Rickson, just how young Gloria was is obfuscated by her publicity. In Picture Play's January 1924 edition, for example, in a piece highlighting some of the best debut performers of the past year, they say, Perhaps the most interesting newcomer of all is little Gloria Gray. She, along with all the others they list, is about 18 years old, they say. Sure, if we round way up... Gloria had indeed just made her debut in 1923's Bag and Baggage, and signed by FBO, had a promising 1924 with some popular, if not high-end, productions. Most notably, A Girl of the Limber Lost, where, as the girl, she was front and center. She was also paired with sportsman and cowboy star Maurice Lefty Flynn, nearly 20 years her senior, as his leading lady. Leading lady in westerns can go either way as far as raising one's profile, as we've established with other Wampus Baby stars. It went the not-very-good way for Gloria. Eventually, she moved over to Universal, where they did what they loved to do, which is stick her in shorts to prove she had the chops. Hers was a supporting role in the Blake of Scotland Yard series in 1927, and some westerns ones. None of it lifted her up. By 1928, she was supporting Dynamite the Dog. And you know, while there was no more handsome a leading man, it did not make a star out of Gloria Gray. And while she continued to appear in smaller roles and even some Argentinian films in the 1940s, Gloria never did achieve much of note on screen. She passed away at just 38 from influenza, leaving behind her estranged husband and a young daughter. Another miss for the Wampas, and perhaps proof that early promise doesn't always count for much. Ruth Hyatt After appearing as a child in a couple of shorts, Ruth Hyatt's career really got started when she was a teenager, when she appeared opposite comedian Lloyd Hamilton in a couple of shorts through educational films starting in 1922. Hamilton isn't particularly well known today, which may be owing to the majority of his work being lost. In the silent era, however, he was beloved and influential. Known as a comedian's comedian, he was a favorite-slash-rival of Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and Charlie Chase. Appearing in his popular serials, with essentially no experience, was a boon for young Ruth. In 1923, Ruth worked opposite a variety of other performers while Lloyd Hamilton went off to film what is described in motion picture world as a blackface comedy called His Darker Self. Jesus Christ. This racist piece of shit was a flop, 
which is impressive considering how popular some other racist pieces of shit were at the time. Anyway, for Ruth, while she was put back in Lloyd Hamilton's shorts upon his return, this did give her the opportunity to get some variety in her filmography. That, and a beach beauty contest that she won, helped get her on the 1924 Baby Stars list. But if they expected her to enter feature-length films, or even land a really great breakout role in a serial, they had some waiting to do. She was busy, don't get me wrong, but busy in two-reelers for the next two years that did little to raise her profile. Finally, she was signed by Max Sennett, not to be one of his bathing beauties, but to appear in what the Exhibitor's Trade Review called Domestic Comedies. Their January 9, 1926 issue reads, Domestic comedies always appeal to audiences. The new Max Sennett series will have Ruth Hyatt and Raymond McKee, who appear as the Spatting Smiths. The first Smith family comedies listed are titled Smith's Baby, Smith's Vacation, and Smith's Landlord. That's just a sampling. Smith's Uncle, Picnic, Kindergarten, Candy Shop, and Catalina Rowboat Race all followed. In fact, there were 28 Smith family comedy installments between 1926 and 1928. It's hard to do much else when you're playing the mom in a family series, though she did appear for Senate opposite Harry Langdon in the feature-length His First Flame, and was loaned out to Warner Brothers for Sid Chaplin's The Missing Length, both in 1927, but it didn't garner her much publicity or attention. It's not that people didn't like her. They did, though they seemed in particular to like her in the context of her character in The Smiths. Moving Picture World wrote about the appeal of the series in their May 21, 1927 issue. It is a demand of curious folk, eager to know how other people live and who can appreciate the many laughs and funny situations which occur each day within the four walls that we call home. They mention the cast specifically, and honestly start to blur fact with fiction. They say, the actors who are the Jimmy Smiths are an interesting trio, referring to Ruth, her co-star Raymond McKee, and child star Marianne Jackson. But next, are they describing Ruth or her role? Ruth is living proof that beauty and dumbness do not necessarily go hand in hand. In fact, she is the managing directess of the family, and by her tact and cleverness, managed to excredite Jimmy Smith from most of his difficulties. Raymond, or rather Jimmy, is described as having an amazing professional facility for getting himself into trouble and always taking the wrong way out. This isn't necessarily an unusual way of writing about characters or promoting a series, but it does support the idea that the studio didn't want to present Ruth or Raymond as anything but their characters. They weren't stars in a serial, they were the Smiths. As an aside, is it depressing or delightful that smart practical wife and silly husband getting into jams is a 97-year-old trope? Once that series finally wrapped, Ruth kept on working in shorts, with occasional teensy roles in longer fare to no notice, before making her final appearance in 1941. So, of course, the Wampus weren't right. 
and truly, Mrs. Smith of the Spatting Smiths was a bigger star than Ruth Hyatt ever was. Dorothy McHale in 1920, Dorothy McHale was 17 years old and an ocean away from home. Born in Kingston-upon-Hull, she had reportedly run away from home a couple of years before to become a dancer and an actor. Though she is not yet 18, Miss McHale has the distinction of having appeared in motion pictures in three countries, England, France, and here. She is a dancer of distinction, and after appearing in the Joy Bell Review at the London Hippodrome, she came here and is a member of the Ziegfeld Midnight Follies, they reported in Motion Picture News in February 1921. It was very shortly after landing stateside that Dorothy also landed a part in the Torchies series of shorts through Educational. Shorts and bit rolls and features filled Dorothy's days for the next year or so. Then, to quote Photoplay in their August 1923 profile on her, John Robertson selected her for the chief feminine role of Dick Barthelmess's new vehicle, the Fighting Blade. Robertson says that she's the most promising young actress he's observed in several years. She has a fine sensitiveness and a superb sense of humor, he says, what more could you ask? They go on to describe her appeal, saying, Oh, yes, and she has beauty, too. Better still, distinction. She's slim, blonde, and of a witching boyishness. In the fighting blade, she wears a boy's disguise in most of her scenes and handles a sword like a cavalier but it is her vividness and verve that count. I must say that looking at pictures of Dorothy, notably ones from these early days, she looks remarkably modern. Her long hair isn't fussed into Mary Pickford-style curls or cropped into a short angular bob. It's flowy, and when she does wear it up, it's never with much overthinking involved. This look is somewhat incongruous to the popular styles of the time, and it reads as free-spirited. Though eventually she would go shorter, the fact remains that she comes across as a girl who truly walks to the beat of her own drum. Not to be pigeonholed, declares a picture play headline in their July 1923 issue. In the piece, they begin by explaining how casting directors always categorize feminine players as cuties, simps, vamps, and heavies, but that Dorothy defied typecasting because she was truly genuine with no false affectations. While we've seen difficult to type equal difficult to cast before, luckily for Dorothy, her naturalness was easier to work around. 1923 brought several more important feature films for her. Mighty Lack a Rose, where she played a blind violinist, and also supporting Bebe Daniels in his Children's Children. Her selection was a sure thing for the Wampus, especially with everything that she had lined up for 1924. 
Dorothy is going right ahead and proving that all the extravagant things said about her screen presence and her acting ability are the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, said Motion Picture Magazine in their, in their May issue that year. She is, without any doubt, one of the most interesting personalities that has come to the screen in many a month. She carried What Shall I Do?, all by her own star power to solid reviews and returns, and co-starred with hunky newcomer George O'Brien in The Man Who Came Back and The Painted Lady through Fox Films. She was so popular at this point that Motion Picture News reported that there was now a Dorothy McHale fan club started by the women prisoners at Reading Jail. In 1925, she signed her first long-term contract with First National, and with it, her profile continued to rise. Her publicity often returns to the same refrains, that she is a true natural and cracks with honesty, even if it is risque, on screen and off. An article in Picture Play, the May 1925 issue, called Would You Marry an Actor? is a great example of this. It answers its own question almost immediately. No, she would not. And didn't, in fact, though she did marry a few times. It then spends the next four pages or so with Dorothy explaining her philosophy on love by way of her romantic history. It is remarkably similar to the interview Clara Bow gave Motion Picture Magazine three years later, which you'll remember from my last episode was basically a fuck-up. Except, unlike Clara, Dorothy did a few key things that made her article less salacious and far more beneficial to her image. First, she didn't name names. Second, while a sexual component to some of the relationships she talks about can certainly be inferred, she also takes care to talk about the wonders of platonic friendships. This gives her more than a little plausible deniability. She can better toe the line of respectability than Clara Bow could. The whole piece is designed to paint Dorothy as someone who is desirable, pragmatic, in control, and it takes pains to stress, all of this is how real modern girls really are. This isn't a flapperish put-on or someone playing the vamp. It ends with, For an actress, after all, underneath her superficial charm and glamour is just a regular, average girl. This was the image First National wanted to develop. They knew that quite a few regular average girls were having sex, so why not appeal to them? Tell them the stories they'd want to see. The easiest way to describe First National's output during this period is that they did make movies for grown-ups, which isn't to say that they're prestigious. They weren't above flapper movies by any means. They were Colleen Moore's studio, for example. But they weren't in the market of making soft pictures, Less fluff, more adult themes. Do you catch my drift? One of Dorothy's starring roles was in the drama Chicky, where she played a poor girl who falls in love with two men and has an out-of-wedlock baby with one of them. Pitcher Play called it the trashiest sort of stuff. Also saying, This story is complicated and terrible. There is everything in it. There is a good young man, played by John Bowers, who, in spite of meaning well, complicates things pretty badly. 
there is a wealthy man about town who doesn't mean right by Chicky until she tells him that she's a good woman. There are several fun-loving working girls, an ambitious mother, a father who knows that this sort of thing won't come to any good. There's a society girl after the hero, and last, oh, quite last, there is a baby and a wedding in the order named. If that won't satisfy everyone, I don't know what will. It did really well. Much of Dorothy's publicity over the next couple of years adds to this air of being forthcoming with a wink, if you will. In a cute picture play feature dishing all about on-screen kisses in March 1926, while many of the other women quoted seem either embarrassed or strictly professional, or only willing to admit enjoying their movie makeouts if they ended up marrying their co-star, Dorothy is quoted as saying, I secretly like to be kissed by all. Shall I tell his name? I'd rather not. His are different. His are the kind that stir the soul. This is, of course, exactly what readers would have been desperately wanting someone to admit. And it helps that she didn't name him, because then fans could assume it was whichever co-star of hers they liked the most. Sex-positive, regular, honest gal is a difficult persona to pull off, as demonstrated by two reviews on the same page of the Exhibitor's Herald of Dorothy's 1926 film, The Dancer of Paris. One reads, Good picture, real high-class entertainment. The other says, Too much nakedness in this picture. Wonder if our censor board was asleep the day this was inspected. So her films weren't necessarily for everyone, though frequent pairings with Jack Mulhall in typically less censor-baiting comedies did help broaden her appeal. As the decade progressed, and as we've discussed before on this podcast, wilder and wilder women became ever more in demand, which worked out well for our Dorothy. Then came sound and, somewhat coincidentally, Warner Brothers' acquisition of First National in late 1928. Warners, especially in the coming years, would have a reputation for gritty films. Lots of crime, lots of hard luck ladies. For Dorothy, who described herself in Screenland's April 1930 issue as hard-boiled, this seemed like good news for her career. She was a woman built for the pre-code era, and she starred in a number of fun, if not particularly important, productions for Warners under the First National Umbrella, including His Captive Woman, The Flirting Widow, and Safe in Hell. In 1931, her contract was not renewed, but her freelancing efforts were strong. By 1934, though, and the enforcement of the production code, her career came to a halt. She made one final film in 1937 after a considerable break, then a few television shows later in life. The ending of her filmography coinciding with the code makes sense, though it's rare to see it ending so abruptly. Dorothy McHale was a star who embodied the frankness and freedom of pre-code films before they were even a thing. If she couldn't be herself or at least the public persona she and First National crafted, then Dorothy simply wasn't interested in being anybody else. Were the Wampus right? 
fuck yeah they were. Eleanor Fair The fan magazines had a really great time writing about Eleanor Fair. All's fair when Eleanor is around is a typical headline. All's fair in love, fair's fair. You get the drift. Eleanor was born in 1903 and started working as a 13-year-old in the films of Oscar Apfel. After a few productions, she signed her first official contract with Fox Films in 1919. She aimed for stardom, of course, but also revealed in Motion Picture Magazine that year that she had other dreams, too. Just you wait. Someday I'm going to prove to you that I can write screen dramas as good as any yet put over. Meanwhile, she is studying scenario writing, is spending all her spare moments concocting plots, and is determined to take a course in building scenarios and writing short stories. It would have to wait, as in the immediate future there was acting to do. She racked up nine credits in 1919, including her most important early role in The Miracle Man with Lon Chaney, Betty Compson, and Thomas Meehan. These were big stars. This was a big movie, one of the biggest of the year. It didn't do much for little Eleanor. She spent the next couple of years in small supporting roles and shorts, though she did get to appear in films with some important personalities like Mary Pickford and Lou Cody. But directly before the Wampus released their 1924 list, Eleanor was appearing in some pretty low-budget affairs. Her only saving grace was an appearance in the Universal Super Jewel production Driven, for which she got special notice for one of the best individual performances of the year in the Best Moving Pictures of 1922-1923 publication, and then also the Metro production The Eagle's Feather, both in 1923. Those were what got her on the list. The boys, we are told that's the Wampus Boys, as referenced in Picture Play, think she has what it takes to venture into the stellar precincts now, and they probably have some secret information on the subject that we don't know about. Well, if they did, it was a secret to Eleanor, too. She only made one film in 1924. I don't really know what happened, except that contemporary reports have her traveling to Miami to make a movie that, as far as I can tell, never came to fruition. In Motion Picture News's March 15, 1924 edition, they say, William B. Brush arrived in New York City March 3rd. He will be here about a week, and then, with Eleanor Fair, one of the 24 Wampus Baby stars, goes to Miami to film the underwater sequences of The Water Babies, a screen adaptation of Charles Kingsley's stories. It seems possible that Eleanor's career was derailed by this failed production, as having only one film released that year really dampened her momentum. She started to get back on track the next year, making a few more films with Fox before signing with Cecil B. DeMille. Her appearance in his picture, The Volga Boatman, would change her life, but likely not how she expected. Eleanor's co-star in the film was William Boyd, and they fell in love. William's account of events on set was quoted in Photoplay. I asked Eleanor to be my wife while the camera was grinding, with Cecil B. DeMille and his assistants and electricians as witnesses. It was the scene where I was about to be killed. I'm pinioned to the gate, with my arms lashed above my head by heavy chains. Rotten situation for anyone, let alone a lover, I assure you. 
Eleanor as Vera, the aristocrat, was at my side, and an angry mob shrieked for my blood. My lines read, With death so near, I can tell you something that I could not tell you in life. I love you with the last beat of my heart. I said it, and I meant it, and Eleanor must have understood that I was not acting, for she whispered to me the words that were not in the script. I love you too, Bill. How did she know I wasn't acting? How does anyone know? And so the legend has it they became engaged while the cameras were rolling. Aside from wordplay with her last name, Eleanor had garnered very little publicity in the grand scope of things, but this romance with Bill Boyd helped. Love ships with the Volga boatman, says Screenland's June issue. It spends three pages saying very little else except how in love they were. A woman in love, it seems, was Eleanor's new persona, if we can stretch so far as to call it that. She gushed about him in Picture Play's May 27 edition, saying, If all the movie fans in the country thought the same way I do, there would be only one star in the pictures, and that star would be William Boyd. After their marriage, while Eleanor didn't outright retire, her output wasn't what you would expect of someone on the DeMille books. She made no films in 1928 at all. Her focus was on her husband. And for more than three years, interviews with either of them included a reference to their perfect bliss, reads Screenland's January 1930 issue. They appeared here and there, Bill's views on the desirability of wives adorning the home, Eleanor's confession that Bill was her first sweetheart, advice on how to hold husbands, and so on and on, together with pictures of the Boyds in poses of conjugal enmity. The jinx got them. The happily married Bill Boyds have separated. Whether for years or forever, nobody knows. It was in a feature called Is Publicity Fatal to a Happy Marriage in Hollywood? Perhaps putting a happy face on all the time did put a strain on their relationship, though one of William Boyd's later wives, Grace Bradley, wrote that Eleanor's mental state had also played a part. Post-divorce and into the era of talkies, Eleanor did make a few more films, but nothing ever pushed her to the next level. Apparently, she did have a southern accent, which I've been kind of trying to do here and there, and uh, it didn't help. She made her last film in 1934. I wish that Eleanor had spent the rest of her life following her earlier dream of being a successful writer, but personal problems plagued her. She struggled with poor mental health, which, as I mentioned, may have been an issue during her first marriage. She also grew a dependence on alcohol and lived in poverty. In the 1950s, she was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. Desperate, she turned to Hollywood, specifically an old co-star, now Gossip Queen, Hedda Hopper, and asked for help. Dangerous Curves Atop Hollywood Heels by Michael G. Anchorage quotes a letter she wrote as, Dear Miss Hopper, I'm Eleanor Fair Martin, ex-wife of Bill Boyd, Hopalong Cassidy, and one time made a picture of you, Has the World Gone Mad?, at the old Tolford studio in NYC. I put this down so you can place me. Miss Hopper, I am dying of a very serious liver condition, aggravated by years of struggle. I have worked hard when I shouldn't have, a couple of jobs, anything to help my husband. Now I can work no more. 
My energy is so depleted. I'm so tired and I need help so badly. Simple help. As far as anyone knows, she never got an answer. Eleanor Fair passed away in 1957 when just 53. Alberta Vaughn. A couple of years ago, two ambitious sisters persuaded their parents to literally move kith and kin from their home in a small city in Kentucky where they were born to Hollywood for the sole purpose of giving them an opportunity to try their hands individually and collectively as movie actresses, says Camera in February 1923 about Alberta Vaughn and her sister Ada May. Other reports have Alberta winning a Prettiest Girl in Kentucky contest, thus encouraging their big move. Whether from winning or dreaming, the family made the move and the sisters made their screen debut in the Hal Roach short Stop Kidding in late 1921. Alberta quickly set to work appearing in a whole bunch of comedy shorts over the next year, mostly under Universal Studios' Century Comedies banner. Nothing very groundbreaking, almost always just playing thankless token girl roles that failed to grab the audience's attention. Born in 1904, Alberta briefly broke out of her pattern of shorts when she appeared opposite Lupino Lane in the five-reel comedy A Friendly Husband with Fox Films, but it didn't make a big impact. Luckily for Alberta, she was introduced, apparently by Buster Keaton, to Max Sennett in 1923. When I spoke about Carmelita Garrity joining Max Sennett's outfit in episode 5, I expressed not only my surprise, but the surprise of the fan magazine writers too. It was an out-of-the-ordinary career move, as Carmelita had already made some big strides in establishing herself. When Alberta joined up with Mac, though, it made more sense, to me and to everybody else. Max Sennett picks another, reads Pitcher Play's February 1924 edition, to be put under contract by the comedy king is as distinctive in its way as being featured by Griffith or DeMille. Therefore, Alberta Vaughn merits your kind attention. That's a far cry from the goodbye the Garrity dignity message of Carmelita's coverage. Part of the reason may have been that Alberta really had what it took to stand out as a performer in the Max Senate comedies outside of his Bathing Beauties crew. Her work with him had already gotten her noticed by the Wampas, and then got her noticed by FBO for their new series, The Telephone Girl. Serials could be a training ground, or sometimes a waste of someone's talents. But given a well-defined character the audiences fall in love with and want to see again and again, a great serial could also be a ticket to stardom. In The Telephone Girl series, she played a character called Gladys Murgatroyd, and if anyone is looking for a new name, I think you should give that one real consideration. Gladys Murgatroyd is the telephone girl at a hotel where all kinds of wacky guests and silly situations occur. It was a sitcom, basically, and Alberta was the star. FBO put her in the Go-Getters series next and promoted her heavily throughout 1924. The cutest girl in Hollywood, declared Pitcher Play in their June issue. In there, Screenland says that she's the comedian who is proclaimed to have more sex appeal than any other girl in Hollywood. And that publication also mentions in their September edition that Alberta has the most beautiful body in Hollywood. But make sure to note that that kind of praise makes her feel self-conscious. 
She's just a bashful little cutie, after all. Audiences adored her. Miss Vaughn is a queen with my fans, said one theater owner in the Exhibitor's Herald in February 1925. While there were rumors that she might jump ship and sign with B.P. Schulberg, luckily for Alberta, those rumors proved to be incorrect. I say luckily because he was still heavily focused on Clara Bow, as we learned in the last episode, and careening towards bankruptcy. Instead, Alberta continued on with FBO and did more popular serials like the Pacemaker Comedies, the Amazing Maisie series, and the Fighting Hearts in 1925 and 1926. In all of these, Alberta developed a well-crafted persona that uh, played to the back rows, as it were. She had a short, curly hairdo, not a flapper's bob per se, rounder than that. It's a very Betty Boopish look. She painted on beauty marks, Cupid's bow lipstick, and played up her big round eyes. Her costumes were loud with big prints, polka dots, and checks, huge bows in her hair. Here, Screenland explains it better than me when talking about her telephone girl character in their March 1926 issue. It was decided that she was not to play the switchboard operator as a sweet, fluffy-haired flapper, but she was to create a type, or better yet, caricature a type so prevalent in the United States. She was to out-flapper the flapper. Her hair was to be a bit more frizzed, her skirts a good deal shorter, her stockings rolled a bit lower, and her dresses, not even her press agents dare to call them frocks, her dresses, as we said, were to create a new screen fashion. They were to fit her form as tightly as she could bear them. They were to accentuate that figure, which Professor Sennett called the most delectable in all of Hollywood. They were to be loud and attractive and full of sex appeal. The Alberta Vaughn character, thus, is sexy, over-the-top, cute, and quirky. She's right in the comedy shorts in which she starred precisely because she gets so much wrong. She's a bit tacky. In 1926, it was announced that Alberta would finally make the leap into feature-length films with her studio FBO. Alberta Vaughn is getting to be a big girl now, declared Photoplay in their September edition, under a photo of her wearing a very fluffy tutu. She's going to be starred in full-length features instead of those serials. Around this same time, she got engaged to actor Grant Withers and was quoted in Cinema Arts magazine as saying that they wouldn't marry until she made good as a star, by which she meant as a feature-length film star. Sadly, though this couldn't have been the only reason that they never made it down the aisle, that kind of stardom was just out of reach for Alberta. FBO did indeed put her in a couple of features. Then Alberta asked to be released from her contract a full four years early. She had nothing else lined up. Something must have happened at the Gower Street plant, said the Hollywood Vagabond in April 1927 about how FBO had planned to put Alberta in more features only for her sudden departure and freelance announcement. They mentioned her new role in Backstage for Tiffany Productions, adding, Well, it's a safe bet that Alberta is getting good money for this part, it is a question whether it will do much for her popularity at the box office, inasmuch as the public was primed to expect her in features from a company of the prominence of FBO. Whether or not Alberta is retrogressing is a question not easily answered, as many are inclined to the belief that salary is the sole barometer of a player's success. 
to our way of thinking, Alberta has failed to live up to the exceptional promise of her first efforts. I'm not entirely sure why Alberta chose to leave FBO at this juncture. Film Lover's Annual in 1934 blamed an over-officious manager, but creative differences also appeared to be a motivating factor, as she definitely did want to try breaking free of her quirky girl persona that she'd established over the last few years. There's also the simple fact that FBO didn't produce many high-quality feature-length comedies, which, despite her desires to break type, definitely would have been Alberta's bread and butter. A mid-range studio, they did action, westerns, crime films, but not really prestige dramas or notable comedies. So the assessment that Alberta had failed to live up to this exceptional promise of her first efforts is, while not completely wrong, certainly open to the interpretation that there simply wasn't a place for her at her home studio. Nor was there much of a place for her out in the big wide world either, at least not a place as a star. She quickly moved into supporting roles, the path which many a funny girl has followed in the decades since, with occasional thankless appearances as the wife in a western over the next couple of years. She did return to short serials, and she was often paired with Al Cook as she had been earlier in her career, but none of these recaptured the excitement of her first shorts. She made her last film in 1935 and struggled with alcohol use in her retirement, even spending some time incarcerated after breaking the terms of her probation after a driving under the influence conviction. A sad turn of events for someone with such unique promise. In a 1932 issue of the new movie magazine called The Town of Forgotten Faces, walking side by side with the stars of today, the favorites of yesteryear pass like shadows through Hollywood, Bitramatic, they say, It is no secret that Clark Gable was an extra in Hollywood several years ago, playing one of the college boys in a series of Alberta Vaughn comedies. Today, Alberta is not a star and Gable is Hollywood's newest and greatest sensation. Hollywood is like that. And with that, I'll leave you for another week, another year of the Wampus Baby Stars list. I'll be back next week with hopefully brighter tales ahead. Or maybe not. Hollywood is like that. I've been your host, Marg, the old movie lady, an unholy mess of a girl.